This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is community supported. Please consider making a contribution at forthewild.world. Also rate us on iTunes to help grow our community. If you're a musician and would like your song showcased on the podcast, upload your tunes on our website. In other news, we were able to premiere our first film, When Old Growth Ends, at South by Southwest this week. We are incredibly honored to share this film, this offering of love and reverence to end old growth logging in the Tongass National Forest of Alaska. The silence is broken by somebody crying Trying to be heard, never a word Always the attitude, sort out your own Always alone, wishing for something The world is denying Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying Somebody wishing for something to happen Wishing to tell, wishing to help Someone was listening, someone who cared Never despaired Someone to lean on and someone to trust Who needs your assistance and finds your Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. Today we are speaking with Rue Mapp. Rue Mapp is the founder and CEO of Outdoor Afro, a national not-for-profit organization with offices in Oakland, California, and Washington, D.C. Rue oversees a carefully selected and trained national volunteer leadership team of 62 men and women who represent 26 states around the U.S. and shares opportunities to build a broader community and leadership in nature. Her important work has generated widespread national recognition and support. In 2010, MAP was invited to the White House to participate in the America's Great Outdoors Conference, and subsequently to take part in a think tank to inform the launch of the First Lady's Let's Move initiative. She was appointed Program Officer for the Stewardship Council's Foundation for Youth Investment to oversee its grant-making program from 2010 to 2012. Since that time, MAP's work and op-eds have been featured in publications including the Wall Street Journal, Backpacker Magazine, Seattle Times, Los Angeles Times, Ebony Magazine, Sunset Magazine, NPR, and many more. Rue's work has also been recognized with numerous awards and distinctions, including the Route 100 as one of the most influential African Americans in the country, 2012 and 2016, Outdoor Industry Inspiration Award, National Wildlife Federation Communication Award, received alongside President Bill Clinton, and Family Circle Magazine selected Rue as one of America's 20 most influential moms. She is proud to serve on the Outdoor Industry Association Board. In 2014, Rue was appointed to the California State Parks Commission by Governor Jerry Brown. A graduate of UC Berkeley with a degree in art history, Rue's skills and background make her a unique voice via the leadership and programs she has instituted through Outdoor Afro, enlightening a diverse community to the wonders and benefits of the outdoors. Rue resides in Oakland, California, and is the proud mother of three active children. I'd love if you could start us off by sharing a bit about your story, as well as Outdoor Afros, and what led you to birth this organization? I'm frequently asked that question, and depending on who the asker is, you might get a slight 
you know, variation <laughs> um, from, from the public view. But for, you know, but for me, I, your words of, you said birth, and that word very much resonates with me when I think about outdoor Afro and just how it quickly became my North Star after talking with a mentor when I was on the verge of applying to grad school and hauling my children across the country potentially. She knew that was going to be really hard to do. I had actually been divorced for several years by that time and had gone back to school to complete an undergrad degree at UC Berkeley, as you mentioned, because I had never finished it. Starting a family interrupted those plans. And after divorcing, I realized I needed to take care of the unfinished business and, you know, got very excited about the prospect of going to business school. I had started a business. I had worked at Morgan Stanley as an analyst and had gone as far as I could go in that organization without more education. So going back to school for me was really about opening more doors to sustain, you know, the economics of the family. But something bigger happened. Um, that mentor asked me a question uh, that I think everyone should ask or, or answer at some point in their life. And she said, or asked, if time and money were not an issue, what would you be doing? And it was this magic moment that was presented to me where I opened my mouth and, and my life fell out. And I said, oh, I, I'd probably start a website to reconnect African-Americans to the outdoors. And everything that I'd experienced in life came into such a, a sharp, pinpointed focus about what I needed to do next. And within two weeks after that conversation, Outdoor Afro was born from a, just a simple blogger template in 2009. And it was the moment that social media was still fairly new. So from my kitchen table, I was able to have this dialogue about the outdoors and what it meant to me, what it meant growing up both in Oakland and in Lake County on a ranch that my dad uh, put together and oversaw for many years where I learned to hunt and fish and ride my bike on country roads and, and how we had this container in nature for family and, and other community members to spend time with each other. So from a very young age, I had this connection to people and to place and Outdoor Afro began as a platform to tell those stories. And I also had a love for technology and was an early adopter of the internet, but also beforehand did lots of coding and just had a relative ease with using digital platforms to connect with people. So Outdoor Afro was really a coming together of all of those things. It was born out of a time in life where I had to think about my next moves. And I was willing to give myself over to it. And ever since then, I mean, I just, I, I haven't really looked back. I've not, you know, I, I did not plan to build a national not-for-profit organization at that time. Um, a national conversation emerged out of that blog that propelled me into the White House the following year for the America's Great Outdoors Conference. And in, and in that moment, I was able to see that there was an entire field of people who have been having these conversations about people and place and the environment and, and trying to make sense of it all and to reach even broader audiences. So I just had a, a number of serendipitous moments in those early months of starting Outdoor Afro that I can clearly see brought us to where we are today. So that's the that's a long version of the how did we get here. It was absolutely an aha moment on one hand, but on the other hand, it was an open door of everything that makes me who I am. And I have to admit that it's the first time in life from a personal perspective and professional one where I get to be all the parts of who I am. And because of that, the work gives me back more than it takes away. And, and I can do more than I've ever done before with joy and ease. That's where we are today. Um, and now I'm running an organization that I just am thrilled to continue to, to nurture and find support for and, and enjoy all the people who are a part of it. I was just thinking about 
the times atop mountains or under ancient trees or in the snow or out on the oceans as birds dive. It's this incredible time to heal uh, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, a time to be inspired and to ground oneself. And being with the earth is when the loneliness of our messy, unjust society can fade into a sense of belonging in the great web of life. And there's just so many benefits that come to mind when I think of people reconnecting with Earth who have never had access to wild spaces before due to systemic barriers. But I'm curious to hear from you. What are some of the shifts that you've witnessed in people that have instilled just how meaningful this work is? Well, there are two really important things that I've learned uh, in this work, and you spoke very eloquently to the first one, that is the healing power of nature uh, and the need for us to recognize nature as a powerful platform or conduit uh, to solve all our problems, quite frankly. The answers are there. I remember uh, when I was rock climbing for the very first time, and I share the story a lot because it's something that stuck with me, where I was climbing and didn't have... um, the proper light uh, gear, and uh, was sent up uh, before we lost light uh, so I could take advantage of what little sunlight was left because we were going to camp at the summit after a day of practice climbs. I was still very anxious about rock climbing. Uh, we had an outdoor connection growing up in my family, but we weren't mountaineers. And I you know, found myself going up slowly and got stuck finally in the middle of of the ascent and just was frozen. I just could not go forward. And I was having, you know, a, a breakdown of sorts. And my instructor leaned over and said these magic words. He said, Rue, trust your feet. And that unlocked something in me. And I scrambled to the top. And I don't know... I can't explain how it happened, but it was the lesson that I needed to learn at 20 years old that I could dig in. I could dig in and I could find strength to carry me forward. Even if I didn't couldn't see what was below me or behind me, or I couldn't identify what was in front of me, that I could trust in myself. And that that was the moment that I recognized nature as a powerful teacher. That was the lesson I needed to learn at the right time. And then fast forward to a few years ago when our nation was just, just we were rocked by, with varying opinions regarding the police involved shootings that were happening. And I live in Oakland, California, and we were bracing for public protest. You know, I believe that that public protest is absolutely, um, it is appropriate. Uh, and I think that it's, it's a tactic that has been effective in shifting, shifting us toward change. I felt that there was something else that Outdoor Afro needed to do, and I wasn't sure what it was. And I was leaving work and, you know, seeing the city preparing and just bracing itself for violence. I just didn't, I didn't feel good about that. And I was walking to my car, the helicopters are already overhead and uh, it's, it's, drawings to the close of the day. So there's all this kind of frenetic energy in the streets. I asked myself, like, what am I supposed to do right now? And the answer came to me. And it was, Rue, you do nature. That's your lane. So I immediately activated the local network and and some of our national partners and, and outdoor Afro leaders at the time to do healing hikes. I went out that weekend with about 30 people in the Oakland Hills, we went to this clearing and we did some yoga and just some intention setting in that moment. And uh, we went down into that Redwood Bowl and I could just feel the, the release of the tension, the strain. Not everybody had the same opinion. You know, these are all, you know, these were majority African-Americans, but we all had different points of view. But we were able to hear each other in a different way. Those woods were able to absorb the excess of our emotion. 
And as we worked our way down to that stream trail, there's a stream trail in Redwood Regional, which is a part of the East Bay Regional Park System. We stopped and we reflected. And I realized that we were doing what African-Americans have always known that we could do. And that's to lay down our burdens down by the riverside. That was the moment that it became very clear to me that nature is a powerful healer. We set intentions as we ascended from that trail about what we might do in our communities, what we might do in our workplace, what we might do in our homes to affect the change that we wanted to see. It was a powerful moment. And uh, we've been doing healing hikes ever since uh, and have since um, created some more structure around that so that leaders, if they want to have a theme around healing, that we're you know, using accessible language and, and, um, and intentionally holding space for people who need it um, for any reason. I recently spoke with Jackie Patterson of the NAACP and a dear friend, Bronte Velez, about the narrative of alienation of African-Americans from nature that in part is a myth that works to further alienate, but also there is truth to it, perpetuated by historical realities. And I'm wondering from your experience, what is the pulse coming from Black youth in regards to their own self-identification with nature? A couple of things are true, absolutely true. And it it touches on what I said before. Black people have always had a connection to nature. It just hasn't always looked like, you know, the single person, you know, the guy standing over the sweeping vista after he has summited the big mountain, right? Um, so I think we have to adjust our lens, our focus to look at how people are connecting to the outdoors. And the thing that's so important for me to remember as I'm talking to people about connecting to the outdoors is that nature is not an other. It is who we are. We are nature. Our bodies are made up of, of water. Um, you know, women are cycled around the, the moon. You know, we have so many connection points to nature. And what I hope to do is just help people to begin noticing how they already are connected. Now, when we talk about specific activities, specific locations of those activities, then we absolutely will see some of the differences surface. So, for instance, remote wild wilderness is not necessarily a, a place that feels safe for African Americans to venture in alone. We can turn to the plaintive lyrics of Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit. And those lyrics are talking about lynching. It's a protest song, you know, out of just the outrage that people were experiencing that I believe, you know, is, is extended to the kind of police-involved violence that we see today. And I just, I feel that, you know, we have a living generational memory of that terror in the woods. And we have those warnings from our grandparents not to go. And so that that's a very valid concern. But I, I want to stop short of allowing that to be the reason that we invalidate or ignore or stop ourselves from meaningful connections to nature and recognize and elevate the importance of connecting to nature nearby.
something ancient and latent is aching to escape. And I cannot contain it, no. I cannot contain it, no. Without assistance or a syllabus, juggling with boulders in my fist, and I feel a little bit like Sisyphus, and I will calculate the distance that it will take to cross this abyss. In your TED Talk, you tell about how outdoor Afro is also about learning, not only of ecology, but of people's histories embedded within ecologies, and how there is an abundance of untold stories of Black history in national and state parks. Are there any of these stories that you'd like to share with us? I'm also wondering if you could speak about the power in reclaiming those stories for African Americans in public lands that have been manipulated or left out of the American narrative, which by and large is told through the eyes of the colonizer. That's a very important part of outdoor Afro that we stumbled upon. You know, storytelling for us has always been who we were, but I don't think it came into focus just how important it was to dig into the narratives of these spaces, these places. And we found that once we told the stories of people who existed, who thrived, who triumphed in places, that we were not only, you know, talking about the pain body of African-Americans and that story, we're talking about the the generative um, aspects of the culture in spite of, you know, overwhelming oppression and systemic barriers. One story that comes to mind is the Monroe family, uh, who came to gold country. And we have to keep in mind that the people who made money <laughs> during the cold rush were not the people who were finding gold. It was the, you know, the innkeepers, the tool makers, the clothing makers, <laughs> the people who provided all of the, the means for people to pursue, you know, gold mining. And this very savvy entrepreneurial family, the Monroe family, former slaves, came and, and set up shop and were the only African-Americans in the town in, in Marshall, California, what is now known today as Marshall, California. And they thrived and they were extremely uh, well off and were well regarded. And today, um, the blacksmith shop still stands and it, it was the blacksmith shop of this black family. Next door is is their home that's still standing, and it's now a part of the Marshall Gold Discovery State Park, which is a California state park. It's, to me, very ironic, but not surprising that while these properties and assets belong to the Monroes, the park was named for the white guy who was their friend. <laughs> and, and so, you know, there's erasure, you know, maybe through lack of knowledge or in even intentional, uh, it's hard to say who was at the table to make that decision on the naming. But by coming up there with African-Americans uh, for whitewater rafting, which we do every year on the American River, to tell that story about a thriving African-American family in a location that really doesn't have an African-American community today, and it's fairly conservative part of the the state, makes people feel a sense of belonging and a care uh, that comes from locating one's own history uh, in that place. And so we find that over and over, we have the opportunity to tell stories of African-Americans who literally lived on a place or something that they they overcame uh, in that area. Or we can remember historical figures, you know, like a Harriet Tubman, who absolutely was a wilderness leader, 
who absolutely understood the earth as a resource and a respecter of the earth, but used it as a platform to help people get free. And I think that there's a big part of our work that celebrates the spirit of helping people to get free. The Homestead Act of 1862 didn't include Black folks. People freshly emancipated from slavery were given pieces of abandoned land in the Confederate South, only for it to be taken away shortly after when pardoned plantation owners pressured the federal government. So I'm wondering, how do pieces of history like the Homestead Act that lie in an unbroken thread with more recent injustices, such as redlining, gentrification, and police brutality, continue to shape the dispossession of people of color from land? We all know why African Americans are here. <laughs> we were here for for the purpose of providing uh, labor to to build this country into what we we know it is today. There are definitely feelings that the usefulness of us uh, in this country is differently viewed today. And there have absolutely all the things you mentioned are true. The systematic erasure and censure and terror um, that African-Americans have have experienced in this country. You know what it makes me feel like? It makes me feel like we are amazingly resilient. When you think about just making it through the middle passage and being able to still pursue education and, and family bonds, you know, throughout the most the darkest periods of our lives to, to still have joy, to still um, be able to, to let our soul shine is a triumph with these, with these conditions that we're talking about. And that's a big part of what this work is all about. It is about really, you know, it's, it's about reclaiming for sure our ability to be connected to land in a generative way. It's also about being American because we are we are here. We've been here. The the bones of my ancestors for the of the past 400 years are here. And so being out in nature, telling these stories is a way of not only our americanness but of remembering our triumph and our potential for possibility to continue to to be here in the future. I think about the redwoods, for instance, in the Oakland Hills, and I talk about how they were all clear-cut in the gold rush in service of of producing housing for all these miners who who came to town. And now you you can go to those redwoods that have regrown. You know, we're now we have second and third generation of redwood stands in the Oakland Hills and elsewhere coast redwoods. And, you know, theirs is a story of regeneration. And I think that nature holds lessons like that for us. And it gives us hope. And it also, for me, nature is a way for us to be relieved of the stress of racism that we all live with. I don't care if you're black or white, we all feel the pressure of, of that cancer. And when I'm in nature, you know, the trees do not know what color I am. You know, the birds don't know what my gender is. You know, the the flowers don't know how much money I have in my bank account. And so I think that we can rely also on nature to be that equalizer for us and, and to, to just shed that weight, even if it's just for an afternoon or, uh, you know, a one hour stroll on a trail. That possibility is there for us. There is this often arising argument about how people of color and oppressed peoples in general don't have time to engage in environmental justice because they're focusing on basic matters of survival or that social justice matters are more crucial. And although I think that there is truth to these statements, I also feel that environmentalism isn't only about protecting polar bears or rainforests thousands of miles away 
but also very much about hazardous waste facilities dumping toxic sludge into the SF Bay or coal plants making children sick. And we know that environmental racism is extremely real and that people of color are disproportionately impacted by environmental degradation. There has never been a separation between environmental and social justice, and I don't think that there ever will be. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, and where do you think this polarization stems from? One of the challenges I have with the traditional environmental justice uh, viewpoints is a reinstatement of the pain narrative in the outdoors and in nature. And I think we have this opportunity to to help shift this narrative that the outside or where you live, you know, is a bad place, is a dangerous place. Uh, a colleague of mine put together a really wonderful curriculum, and it's available online for download called What's Good in My Hood. And it's it's basically a like a, a mini bio blitz that young people can do where they live to make observations of things like wildlife in their neighborhood and to start noticing, you know, how, how is the wildlife sustaining itself? And it moves you through this continuum of noticing, counting, and, and all the way to the end where you actually can write in the name of your local elected official um, and, and, and including the president of the United States. And so I think that we have this opportunity to have an asset-based conversation and to really get people to, to love, you know, what, what we do have. We all have something in nature to love right outside of our window. And it is absolutely true at the same time that we do have vulnerable communities living in very environmentally uh, stressed conditions. Uh, and we absolutely have to find a way to mobilize the kind of support that's needed to transform those communities into healthier ones. Yet we also still can find ways to understand that nature is in the outdoors, the environment is not here, is not in and of itself here to harm us. And the human hands that have turned us in that direction, or we also have human hands and, and minds that can shift us in an opposite direction. And that's the space where Outdoor Afro wants to be. And I just, you know, I can't say enough that, you know, we, we absolutely talk about nature and people and the pressing needs that individuals have in one conversation. So it's, it's never outdoor afro out for nature's sake only but it's about how we can be in a platform of understanding nature to better understand ourselves in your ted talk you also speak about how it's not effective to try to rush people into conservation that relationship to place and land and community in general really is foundational so i'd really like to hear you expand on this train of thought I often will see young people, for instance, be encouraged to go and take environmental action. And I think that's great to get people started at a young age, thinking about the environment, making good decisions about, about how to behave in a way that's environmentally conscious. What's challenging at times is when young people, especially young people of color, are asked to go out and perform conservation-related activities in places they've never been. For instance, if I see kids out at a beach doing a beach cleanup, you know, my question is, have they ever played here? Have their toes ever dug into the warm sand? Have they ever laid on that beach and, and heard the waves and the gulls on an afternoon? Like These are the things that inspire me to want to get out and take care of a place because I have a relationship with it. And I just feel that, you know, we, we rush along that relationship because of, you know, it's something we, we feel is urgent, which is totally reasonable. There's a fair amount of um, philanthropic pressure, you know, so if the, you know, if the grant guidelines or, or deliverables include connecting with 
communities of color to do a specific activity, you know, then people are are going to create those scenarios uh, to satisfy the funding um, requirement. But I think that, you know, we have to just remember why we do what we do. You know, I do this work on top of a long, long lifetime of experiences that I've threaded together that make me care for for places, even places I'll never go because I understand the connection between, you know, remote wild places like the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and, you know, Oakland, California, you know, where, you know, we see the same birds during the migratory season along the Pacific Flyway. Um, so I just, I just feel that, you know, we have this opportunity to, to help people build relationships and on that basis of their relationship to nature, they will want to take care of it, but it's not going to happen sometimes on the timetable <laughs> that we want it to happen. And, and we have to help co-create and facilitate, you know, other creative solutions beyond one-time beach cleanup days, but that it becomes a lifestyle. It becomes a part of who you are, but it's born out of a relationship and not a transactional request. do feel connected to a place and you fall in love and you build this relationship, you are more apt to stand for it and to put your energy into protecting those spaces that you build relationship with. But then of course, the flip side is this urgency when we're seeing so much destruction happening to earth daily and the fear that arises with so much resource depletion and species going extinct it's this balancing act and I really appreciate how you brought up the time scale because I think at least for me in this human body with my human lifespan it can get difficult to take a step back and think about these issues in a deep time sense and understanding that things take time they take time to heal they take time to destroy uh, even though it seems like destruction happens much quicker at least at this rate in the industrial world i think this is really a challenge for the movement towards regeneration how do we balance our urgency and what we are seeing and also realize that we need to go deeper in our relationship buildings with land and with each other to really see sustainable shifts 
and being able to dismantle the systems that are so entrenched in our in so many threads of our lives. Yeah, it it, it can be overwhelming, and and I just. You know, sometimes I'm in these rooms where that we're talking about nature and people are talking about the fight and, you know, it's just like super tense and aggressive. And I'm like, whoa, let's not forget the love here. Let's not forget the joy, you know, why we do this work, the types of experiences we have in this work, how it makes us feel you know, the motivation behind, um, you know, doing some of the heavy, heavier, not so sexy lifting. Um, and I think that's what keeps me going is remembering that this is a love story, right? Um, it's not a fight story. It's a love story. And it just, it, it allows me to, to, to show up in this work in a much more powerful way with more agency versus defensiveness. And, and it allows us to be heard, quite frankly, in a different way. And so I, I, I have come to, to greatly value that. That said, you know, I think that with any kind of social change, there have to be many types of voices, levers and pulleys and policies and science and PR. And, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of different ways. Um, but this is, for us, our way. And it's, it's become so clear to me that you know, as I mentioned before, to to stay in my lane. <laughs> you know that that I we can't we can't answer all questions um, and be able to do all things, but we can powerfully dig in with with what we love and what we know, and and link arms with others to shore up the rest uh, in order to see sustainable change. I needed to hear those lessons right now. <laughs> Just, I, I really resonate with staying in your lane and it's a love story. It's easy to get pulled off your block, right? It's easy, like for instance, you know, we get, this is a good example. We get lots of calls around diversity and inclusion because obviously the traditional environmental movement doesn't necessarily reflect what America looks like. When when look through through the lens of what you know we consider the environmental movement. I mean, Absolutely. there are other there are people who could shape it um, in other ways, and we choose to without their Afro frequently. That said, um, we just we have to reframe, I guess, what we imagine an environmental leader looks like, right? But what we frequently get requests for is how to be more diverse. How can we attract more people into our group? How can we get more people to come on our trips? You know, this. how can we get more people to love this place as much as we love this place? Honestly, just, I don't have answers. I do not have answers because our outcome without Durafro is absolutely diverse. And, you know, we, <laughs> we certainly don't have a diversity problem, um, but I can't, I cannot package that into the answer that, that I think a lot of people are seeking right now to figure out how to be something different. And once I got clear that that was not what I was here to do, that I'm really here to dig down and double down on Black joy in nature, it's so relieving because there are people, I think, who can do that work with with a lot of expertise and experience that we don't have. And and I want to make sure that whatever I do in this field um, of environmental support, um, that I'm doing it in the best way. And and knowing and knowing your part to play in this is is so key. What a good pep talk for not just me, but I'm sure <laughs> so many others that are listening to this and feeling the overwhelm of their place in this huge love story, and waking up and having the the confidence to move forward in their role and that their role is specific and unique to them and I'm also really curious about the role of urban green spaces and all of this of course you can't substitute a city park for a remote mountaintop but the more you open to a connection with the earth the more you can be in touch with plants animals everywhere you go as population continues to rise and cities become more dense, preserving and expanding urban nature 
becomes even more crucial. And I'm wondering about disproportionate access connected to racial segregation and justice to green spaces and cities, particularly as it ties to gentrification. And what are some of the feelings people involved in outdoor Afro express in regards to urban nature or in regards to connecting with nature in an urban landscape? First off, I want I would want to gently push back on the assumption that while different, um, one is not superior than the other when we compare urban close nature close to home with remote capital W wilderness, right? Um, I think it's all relative to who you are and your life experiences. And, and I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges that I have faced in this work where you know, there's this hierarchical viewpoint of what nature is. And, you know, if you're not driving four hours away from your house to go to a pristine wilderness, an untrammeled by man place, that you're not really doing it, <laughs> you know? And so I I want to, to make sure that we're, we keep the legitimacy and validity of, of local nature right in front of people. Because the fact is, is there's wildlife all around us. You may not see it, but it's all around us. <laughs> I mean, it is, uh, it's, it's, it's a part of the lived experience, no matter where you are. You know, do you necessarily have habitat for it in your house? No. But, you know, you go outside in the evening and you're going to run into perhaps a skunk, an opossum, deer, raccoons. Uh, you know, there's just wildlife everywhere. And of course, birds, birds are everywhere. All you have to do is look up. And so I just, I love to shine a big light and help people, you know, recognize that we have so much diversity of nature. I mean, even just walking my dog in the neighborhood, noticing, you know, the life cycle of plants um, from, you know, seed to bloom or perennials or, you know, just the smells, you know, in the air, especially this time of year as, as we're on the verge of things blooming. There's so much to notice and appreciate close to home. And that said, you know, I have had challenges with some of the ways that communities who have waited and worked and advocated for even, you know, for north of a decade, even in some cases, for that park to be in their neighborhood, long past the time when their children could actually play in it, right? That those areas that have green spaces absolutely are more desirable to live in and can accelerate gentrification because property values are going to increase with the proximity of and the walkability um, of green spaces nearby. And it, it, it absolutely creates economic pressure on the people who live in those communities where these changes occur. And I think that if we're going to if we're going to advocate for green spaces to be in closer proximity where people live, we have to also think about displacement in the same and talk about displacement in the same conversation. You know, there's a kind of a anecdotal understanding in Oakland where I live that if you see bike lanes, then you know, you know, gentrification is coming soon in your neighborhood. And because, you know, bike lanes just appear out of nowhere and there isn't, you know, community engagement, it's a good thing for more people to ride their bikes. Yes, I, we all can probably agree with that. But unless we actually have communities authoring how these decisions are made and, and how they're implemented where they live, then we're going to see a huge disconnection between how people use them, appreciate them. And I think that, you know, it's the same thing is true with green spaces in my observations. We have a long way to go, but it's, it's very, it's a challenging uh, phenomenon that I don't think could have been foreseen at the time when people were advocating for parks close to home, what these specific outcomes would be and the awareness that we have today of the crush of, of, population influx into urban areas is. Something you brought up at the beginning of our conversation, uh, and there's two things that I want to speak of. One, that there's often times where potentially a person of color may not feel safe going out into the wilderness alone. And then 
potentially this fear um, of violence or, you know, needing protection. And then there's also this other point that you mentioned about, I think, gun violence or police brutality. I, I don't remember which one. And so when I'm thinking about these feelings of not feeling safe and the atmospheres of persistent violence and racial profiling, and I, I would love to hear your opinion on how more people in connection with the earth can help disrupt cycles of violence. Violence, you know, it sometimes doesn't take the form of physical violence. You know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term microaggressions. It shows up most of the time, and for most people, when challenged in nature, looking more like, oh, so who are you here with? Why are you here? Is What group is this? You know, getting questioned, getting stares, people acting fearful of you, people overwelcoming you. That's a thing, getting overwelcomed. <laughs> in a place. So I think we all have a part to play in in a couple of ways. One, I hope that in the work of Outdoor Afro that I'm helping people feel a sense of agency, ownership, and belonging in places that they can begin to, to use and be in in the safety of a group that shows them how, right? And that through that experience, they can go back on their own. And we see this all the time. We see people all the time, like show us pictures. And, you know, we've seen other groups form that go to places we've been. And so we really hope to pioneer in people's lives the connection to nature if it's been disrupted and celebrate those who have that existing connection. And then I think that from the side of folks who are, you know, frequent users, who are not uh, people of color, to just be ordinary. <laughs> we, we want people outside in nature in proportion to their population and their opportunity and it not being a big deal. And so I think that's the not do do that I would say is important. You know, it's just being with people, being with people and allowing people to be in nature is is something that we absolutely feel is important and valuable. Thank you for bringing up the microaggressions. Here I was thinking on a different scale and just to hear the many levels in which violence can play out and divisiveness can play out is so important to take in, not just intellectually, but somatically because how we interact with each other often leads to separation. And so I feel like that's a really important point. Yeah, I'll tell you kind of a funny story really quick if I've got time to illustrate my point. So I, I get out in nature you know, pretty frequently and it's, <laughs> it's a wonderful tribute to the work, but I can see that if it wasn't me, how it could be viewed differently. And that is, oh, wow, have you heard about this group, Outdoor Afro? <laughs> and, and, you know, so people know about Outdoor Afro um, and want to rightfully connect me with Outdoor Afro, not knowing, you know, that I'm, I am Outdoor Afro, basically. But, you know, it's that kind of a call out. I don't know, would, would be welcomed if you're just out trying to have a peaceful walk. You know, you might not want to join Outdoor Afro. You may not, you may have your own thing going on, you know, and I could see how someone in a very well-meaning way would want to make that connection. But it's something that I've heard frequently enough that I know it's happening to other people. <laughs> <laughs> From what I gather, Outdoor Afro has already sparked so much connection in communities all around the country. I want to hear your thoughts on how you see this expanding and growing you know, what is your hope of this work for the future? I've heard people talk about obsolescence, right? Like, will we always have to have a group like Outdoor Afro? Like, will we have, you know, this wonderful moment where it just won't need to be anymore? And I think that Outdoor Afro will persist by virtue of the fact that there's something really powerful about building community and leadership in nature that looks like, you know, looks like you. And there's really, there's no other place that I've found that exists in this way that 
you know, allows people who are African-American to show up fully. Our leadership team is comprised of, you know, men and women from so many different backgrounds, so many different experiences, class differences, you name it. We've got everybody in Outdoor Afro and they all share two things. They share being black and and having a fire in their belly to connect people to nature. But everything else is, you know, up for grabs in terms of identities. And I'm really proud of that. That needs to remain. And I think that, you know, biggering for biggering's sake is not the goal. The goal for us is to deepen, you know, what we have. And one of the ways that I hope to do so is for Outdoor Afro to acquire land. I want to recreate what was given to me that has blessed me immensely growing up is that home place, is some place where we can go and be surrounded and enriched by the stories, by the food, by the art of African-American culture, while also being a platform for bio blitzes and learning how to do outdoor skills, like make a fire, growing food. There's just, I believe, an opportunity to create a true demonstration site, as well as a retreat from racism in nature. Someplace where you know you can go and you're not going to get the inquisitive stare. You're not going to get questioned about why you're there or whose group is this. And you can just be in a place that's welcome to everybody. Is something that I really hope to leave as part of my legacy of for Outdoor Afro, and, th- and that can continue to expand well after you know my time is up. But that's that's what's on my mind about place and space because we can we borrow public lands to do our activities, and I'm grateful for that. But because they're public lands, you know, parks, national parks, regional. BLM, you you know, not every, you can't do everything everywhere. And I think that there's just something really important about, you know, having a place to call home, given the ways that African-Americans have been separated time and again and again and again from home, from our mother Africa, from what we were promised in the form of 40 acres and a mule, to redlining, to the recent loan crisis. We've had just waves of separation. And I think that having an outdoor Afro home place that everybody can call home will be really powerful. When I think about where we're headed, permanency and deeper connection. the levels that you've shared with us of the microaggressions and then the macroaggressions and all of the pieces in between and how actually having a permanent place to just be with the land, with the plants, with the sky, with growing food and learning these skills just feels so right. Well, I'm so glad to share. And I, and I think it's so important to share your dreams and your visions because you know, you just never know. You just never know how the ripples, you know, I've, I've been doing this long enough to just appreciate the connectivity and to invite people into your dreams, you know, what that means. And so I, I very much appreciate your your words of support because it's going it's gonna to require, you know, so much more than me to make happen. So we invite everyone to engage at whatever level um, they like with Outdoor Afro. Always let people know that you don't have to have an Afro to be a part of Outdoor Afro. We welcome anyone who, you know, has an affinity um, for this work that we do and, and supports it. 
but I also just want to remind us to um, take care of ourselves and don't be so hard on yourself. You know, I, I know we're grappling with a lot right now, a lot of change, a lot of uncertainty. We owe it to ourselves to remember our love for nature and our love for one another and importantly, our, the love of ourselves and have faith that it's going to be okay. Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. Musical guest for the show, Marianne McLaughlin with Studying Metamorphists, Kendra Swanson with Heartland, and Harrison Foster with Beam. Our theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank our entire team here at For the Wild, our producers, March Young and Andrew Storrs, Research Director Madison Mogolski, and Media Director Molly Lebo. Thank you, and until next time.